Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. On April 20th, 2010, a blast aboard the Deepwater Horizon offshore oil platform killed 11 workers, critically injured others, and caused a leak that spilled thousands of barrels of oil into the Gulf of Mexico for more than three months. The Deepwater Horizon, one of the worst environmental disasters in history, is now the subject of a pulse-pounding new movie. Historian and archaeologist, USU professor of Environment and Society, Joseph Tainter, watched the film with special interest. He's author with today's uh, Tad Patzik of uh, University of Texas at Austin of Drilling Down, the Gulf Oil Debacle and Our Energy Dilemma. Tainter is also author of the influential book, The Collapse of Complex Societies. He says it takes energy to find and produce energy, and the world's remaining untapped petroleum reserves are in deep, dark, cold, remote, and dangerous locations. Energy is becoming very costly in terms of resources, safety, and environmental health. We're going to talk about the Deepwater Horizon today, oil and natural gas, alternative energy, and the collapse of complex societies with uh, Joseph Tainter, who received his Ph.D. in anthropology from Northwestern University. He's taught at University of New Mexico and Arizona State University, and until 2005 directed the Cultural Heritage Research Project in the Rocky Mountain Research uh, Station. He's been professor of environment and society since 2007 to served as department head. Um, Joseph uh, Tainter, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Uh, so let's hear first the, the uh, or at least part of the trailer uh, to the film, which is now out. My dad is Mike. He works on a drilling rig that pumps oil out from underneath the ocean. Hey, duck! We a big company with millions of moving parts. Just me or just get real bright in there all of a sudden? Are you seeing this? Mike, what is that? Is everything okay? Sounds very dramatic, uh, Joseph Tanner. This uh, stars, I should say, uh, Mark, Mark Wahlberg, Kurt Russell, John Malkovich, Gina Rodriguez, uh, Kate Hudson. Top cast, uh, you know, an A-list uh, film. Uh, what did you think of the film? I, I give it high marks for showing just what it takes to produce oil today, the incredibly sophisticated, complex technologies that are also very costly. Uh, Deepwater Horizon was supposed to have cost something like a half million dollars or ha half billion dollars, $500 million to build and $500,000 a day to run. Uh, and, and, and this is what it takes to produce oil today. Uh, there was a time once when we got oil by sticking straws in the ground, basically, and we don't do that anymore because yeah. uh, we've used up the easy oil. So this illustrates I want to get into the cost. Um, and, and as you say, uh, uh, tapping the world's remaining untapped uh, petroleum reserves are they're in deep, dark, cold, remote, and dangerous locations. So the danger, this this film certainly illustrates the danger. Part. It 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 certainly does. And and the, when the uh, space shuttle blew up a number of years ago, the the investigation argued that complex systems typically fail in complex ways, and you certainly see that in Deepwater Horizon, and it's it's very clear in the film that there were so many things happening at once that were hard to understand that it's just very difficult for people to comprehend what's happening in the middle of a catastrophe. And at the same time, and the film also shows this, there was some self-serving behavior going on on people, part of uh, the, the company that was trying to, to save money. The, the operating costs, as I said, were $500,000 a day, mm -hmm. and they wanted to finish there and, and move the rig to another location. Hmm. Uh, so I wanted to finish up there. I want to get into uh, the you know, complex societies, the, the increasing cost, as you put it, the energy return on investment, mm -hmm. uh, which is increasing, right? Uh, okay. But... Uh, First of all, the, the specifics of the Deepwater Horizon. Uh, this is a very complex operation. Um, it, it, oil rigs are going out deeper and deeper, right? Yes. So Deepwater Horizon, that's, uh, it's, yes. it's in the name. Mm -hmm. uh, what, uh, in brief, what happened? Well, the, the technical parts of it were written by my colleague, Tad Patsik, who's, who's now in Saudi Arabia, so he wouldn't be able to join mm -hmm. us. Um, but from my limited technical knowledge, I, I recall that he focused particularly on 
cementing the well and faults in the cement that was used, and it wasn't tested adequately. And, and, and he was concerned in, in this regard that, that there wasn't due diligence on the part of BP, that the BP officials simply wanted to get things done and move on to the next job. Mm-hmm. And then there was a series uh, – the location itself was very difficult to work in, uh, and it particularly required extra diligence, which wasn't forthcoming. Uh, and, and, and then there was a whole series of things that happened very quickly, a whole series of, of, of events that happened quickly that people simply couldn't, couldn't cope with. They didn't understand what was happening or how to shut it down. Then there were several technological failures. Um, there are devices that are, that are down at the bottom of the seabed, this was three miles down, that are supposed to shut off the oil flow, but they failed to work. And one of them may have failed to work because one of the pipes was set incorrectly because of a previous mistake. So there was this, a whole concatenation of mistakes, some self-serving, short-sighted behavior, and then complexity set in and just made the whole thing difficult to understand as it was unfolding. Mm-hmm. And you could hear it a bit in that uh, to the trailer, just very confusing, a very complex system and... For one person to understand the whole thing, you know. Yeah, and, and the, film, do. the film does a good job of bringing this out, and, and even still, the film simplifies because it had to. Uh, mm-hmm. But the, the film does a good job of bringing out just how confusing it was at the time. The, the operators didn't know why things were happening, why things were going wrong. Mm-hmm. And of course, the human cost uh, 11 dead, uh, many yes. injured. Um, and uh, oil extraction's always been. You know, fairly dangerous. Um, you, you, you hear about, I, I heard growing up stories of uh, oil oil field, uh, usually injuries. You know? Yes, yes, certainly yes. If, if you were right there working where the pipe goes in the ground, there's always been some danger with that. Mm-hmm. But it's a matter of degree of danger. Uh, when you have a catastrophe today, it's much larger in scale and, and much more difficult to comprehend why the catastrophe is happening or being able to shut it down. And this is in part because of the complexity of the systems that, that uh, people are operating on. Uh, one of the safety systems on Deepwater Horizon required flipping 30 switches. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're in fear of your life, you're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this is part of the problem. The problem was simply complexity. And then the cost, and then, you know, understandably, from a certain point of view, BP wanted to reduce cost. If it's costing you half a million a day to yes. to uh, to operate the the oil rig, um, on the other hand, as we found, if if you don't take certain precautions, uh, the the risk increases. Something well, catastrophic happened. Yeah, and, and and in that regard, I think you have to look corporate look at co- corporate culture and the pressures within a corporation to cut corners and save money. Uh, we can see that similarly in the Wells Fargo scandal today, where the corporate culture looks to have been at fault. Yeah, I mean, you could, you could blame the workers, right? The 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 oh, and usually the, the workers, workers are blamed. They are yes. blamed. Yes, but the pressure on them was intense, yes. right? In the Wells Fargo case. Yes. Yes. Yeah, um, and and uh, this is kind of a side subject, but then you know the the CEO he he gets stripped forty million dollars, but he's still going to get hundred million. You know, it's, it's, oh yes. Yes. The people at the top still get taken care of. Yes. Um, <clears throat> so uh, an illustration, a comparison that you make, uh, back in the day when it was just sticking a straw in the ground, um, it, it, it cost, the, the, the return investment was high, right? So it cost a barrel of oil to, to get 100? Is that the, it, the ratio? Yeah. In, initially, the, the typical way that resource systems evolve is that you first pluck the low-lying fruit. In the case of oil, it's what's called easy oil or conventional oil, which is large pools that are onshore and shallow. We've mostly found and tapped those and to a large extent used them up. Let me give you an example of, of how this came about. This, my favorite example is in 1892, a fellow named Edward Doheny found oil near Los Angeles at a depth of 140 meters. The interesting part of the story is that he drilled the hole using the sharpened end of a eucalyptus tree. (laughs) (laughs) We're never again again going to find oil using sharpened eucalyptus trees. You can't make this up. This is true. No, this is true. You can't make it up. Yeah. Um, And and then we have evolved from that to these incredibly capable technologies. But at one point early in the film, Mark Wahlberg goes through a list of all the systems that weren't working on any given day. And, it's only, and he says it's only a partial list of the systems that weren't working. That, that little statement gives you an idea of just how complex this machinery was. Now, when you can get oil simply by sticking a straw in the ground, you get a very high return on investment. 
And the usefulness of oil depends on what we call energy return on investment. Now, investment isn't dollars. It's energy. It's energy returned on energy invested. It takes energy to get energy. So in 1940, the United States was able to produce oil and gas at an energy return. We call it EROI, energy return on investment, of 100 to 1. And actually, this is how we fought World War II, was that we had so much capacity that a third of our capacity was simply shut in. We fought World War II simply by opening valves. Today, the EROI is down to 15 to 1 for oil in the United States, and the trend is irreversible. Mm -hmm. uh, for Canadian tar sands, the EROI is about 1.5 to 1, um, and this is unsustainably low. So what, happen what happens is that the oil gets harder and harder to find. It occurs in smaller and smaller concentrations and in places, as you said, and I like to say, in places that are deep, dark, cold, remote, and dangerous mm -hmm. so that it's risky and it takes incredibly costly and complex technology to get it out. So this is deeper and deeper in the ocean? Yes. Right, not only uh, the Gulf of Mexico but uh, the North Sea Yes. Other other places. Well, there's there's talk of oil now off the coast of Greenland. This is the environment that sank the Titanic. Mm -hmm. But you can bet they're planning on ways to get it out. Yeah. Uh, and, and so more and more remote, colder and colder, darker mm -hmm. and darker becomes yeah. more and more dangerous. Yes, indeed. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that and the technology becomes more dangerous. Mm -hmm. Now, th there are safety systems built in, but on Deepwater Horizon, a lot of the safety systems were never even deployed. I mean, the men were in fear of their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, so you say the, the tar sands 1.5 to 1, which is reverse, right? Which is, that's not sustainable. Well, right? well, well to, to, to get one and a half barrels out, it, it takes another barrel. Oh, so, okay. So, 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 so you, get point, a, you get 0.5 return. Yeah. In, in, in other words, to, if you want to export three barrels of oil, it takes five, the equivalent of five barrels. Although mm -hmm. what they use is on-site natural gas. Mm -hmm. But you know, the natural gas is abundant there, but that has an opportunity cost. That's natural gas that can't be used in the future to heat homes or generate electricity or run factories. Right. So if more and more of the energy is going to produce energy... Precisely. More and more energy and to produce energy. Less and less to uh, sustain the complexity the, of society that we the, have. The net to sustain society mm -hmm. goes down. Yeah. Um, I uh, want, to, uh, want to follow up just a little bit on that um, uh, and maybe take fracking as, as an example. Mm -hmm. This has been lauded in some circles as a wonderful innovation and, it's, mm -hmm. and in, uh, has kept us, you know, some circles will, you know, just say it, Republicans will tell you that... Uh, that this has kept us energy independent, and that's a, that's a very desirable goal. More important than, than energy independent, if we don't have sufficient energy, and at the moment that means mainly fossil fuels, we're in danger of a societal collapse, similar to what happened to ancient societies like the Roman Empire, the Maya, and, and several other couple of dozen other ancient societies that collapsed in part because uh, because they grew to the point where they couldn't sustain themselves on their energy sources. A, a few years ago, four or five years ago, I was very concerned about this. I was concerned that within perhaps t 20 to 30 years, we would be facing a situation like that. So in a way, hydraulic fracturing has, has saved us for a time. It's given us, it's given us a few extra decades to figure out a way to get onto other energy sources. The question is, will we use that that, that period wisely. Will we will we wisely shift to other energy sources? I want to follow up with that. Uh, gets us into uh, complexity and how complexity in society is sustained mm -hmm. by energy. Yes. And I'll, I'll help you give me some some examples. You you compare Roman Empire too. That's kind of a yes. baseline comparison yeah. uh, to uh, today. Follow up with the, with with the statement that fracking has perhaps given us a couple extra decades. Let's take a break first. When we come back more with Joseph Tainter who is a professor of Environment and Society in the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University's author of Drilling Down, co-author of Drilling Down, The Gulf Oil Debacle and Our Energy Dilemma. A film is just out called Deepwater Horizon. He's also author of the influential book, The Collapse of Complex Societies. We'll talk more about this following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members in the Block Film and Art Festival, a celebration of independent artistic expression in downtown Logan. Film, art, music, and education, Friday, October 7th through Saturday, October 8th. More information available at theblockfestival.org. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community of everyday philanthropists raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at www.womensgivingcircle.com. 
I'm Jeremy Hobson. We'll have analysis of the vice presidential debate and look forward to the next presidential debate on Sunday. Polls have given Hillary Clinton a bump since the first debate. Will it hold? And will Donald Trump change his strategy going into debate number two? Our political analysts will weigh in. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking uh, with USU professor Joseph Tainter. Uh, Joseph Tainter uh, is author of a book, co-author of a book with uh, Ted uh, Patsick of uh, University of Texas at Austin. It's called Drilling Down, the Gulf Oil Debacle and Our Energy Dilemma. Uh, In the book, uh, the authors connect the Deepwater Horizon uh, catastrophe with uh, oil and gas and with societal complexity. Uh, an influential book. Another of the books of Joseph Tainter's is The Collapse of Complex Societies. And uh, we'll get into talking about uh, how Deepwater Horizon uh, connects us up with this idea of uh, societal collapse, uh, complex societies especially. Um, Joseph Tainter uh, says that it takes energy to find and produce energy, and the world's remaining untapped petroleum reserves are in deep, dark, cold, remote, and dangerous locations. He goes on to say that energy is becoming very costly in terms of resources, safety, and environmental health. You're welcome to join the conversation here at 800-826-1495. Toll free, 800-826-1495. You can reach us by email as well, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, and you can reach us on Twitter um, at upraxcess. So, Joseph, Joseph Tinder, you uh, you said before the break, uh, we were talking about fracking, mm-hmm. and um, which is you know an incredible technology, mm-hmm. and has uh, produced natural gas at uh, very low prices. In fact, that's contributing to, I think, a drop in oil prices as well, you know, keeping oil prices uh, low. Um, and you said that uh, you, you were very worried, uh, I guess, before the, the fracking boom. You, you said this has bought us a couple of extra decades, you think. I, I, was, I was very concerned four or five years ago when the price of oil was going through the roof. In fact, if we recall, going back to 2008, oil was hitting $140 a barrel. And gas was something like 4.50 a gallon to put it in your in the tank in your car. Uh, I was quite concerned at that time that perhaps and, and 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 a number of analysts were warning that we were reaching the point that's called peak oil, which would be the point where half of the reserves have been pumped out, and after that production declines year after year after year. But then along came hydraulic fracturing, uh, a technical innovation that I think has given us a reprieve. Although, of course, it has its own costs in that we're continuing to pollute the atmosphere and, and put, in the, put out greenhouse gases. Um, but, but, I, but I think that hydraulic fracturing has given us a break. It's given us a reprieve of perhaps a few decades that, that we can use to begin a transition to alternative energy sources. Now, alternative energy sources are not without problems. Uh, some of them are quite environmentally damaging. Um, but we can't do without energy. I mean, our society depends on energy. You know, we, we, we like to think that, that we came to our way of life through ingenuity and entrepreneurship and hard work, and I don't want to downplay any of those things, but those wouldn't have mattered without fossil fuels. Um, it, before fossil fuels, energy production was about 95% of economies. This is in the area in the era of subsistence farming, and, and the production of energy would have been primarily agriculture. Now, when you can devote only 5% of your economy to other things, there's no very little possibility for education, um, for entrepreneurship, for capitalism, for developing consumer products because people are too poor to afford them. Today now, energy is less than 5% of our economy, and that's what allows us to do all of the things that we do today. Uh, I I like to use the concept of what's called energy slaves. Uh, An energy slave is the amount of energy that you could get from a human slave working 24-7, as people in the ancient world did if they were wealthy enough to own slaves. Uh, It's estimated that each American today has the service, the energy service of of approximately 100 energy slaves. Uh, In in, in other words, if we had lived 2,000 years ago in ancient Rome, to get that kind of energy, we would have had to own 100 slaves, and they would have had to work 24-7. Mm. So th- this is how we're able to live today. And, and, and a film like Deepwater Horizon, I hope, brings to people attention just how critical energy is in our society. 
So if we talk about collapse of complex societies, it's the energy that's allowing us to be to become complex. I wonder if you could uh, to continue that parallel with, there, with there, ancient there's a, Rome. There's a phenomenon that I call the energy complexity spiral. We, when we have surplus, surplus energy is rare in human history. We live in a period of surplus energy now, so we tend to think it's normal. But in fact, in human history, it's been very rare. Most of human history, people have struggled to produce energy. Today, we simply pump it out of the ground, and it's very abundant and still relatively inexpensive. Uh, so as, as abundant energy increases, we find ways to use it up, and that increases the complexity of society, which you can see in... Uh, all of the products that are available to us. You know, there's new electronic widgets available all the time. Uh, just the size of our institutions, the scope of our institutions, uh, the number of social roles and, and specialties and professions that there are in our society. All of these things are made possible because of having inexpensive energy. So inexpensive energy drives up complexity. At the same time, we also increase in complexity to solve problems. You can see this particularly in the technological sphere. Uh, and Deepwater Horizon is an excellent example. As easy oil has been exhausted, we've had to go to places where it's more difficult to get oil and develop these complex and costly technologies. So that complexity, and then complexity that, that comes through problem solving in turn requires more energy. So we have the spiral where complexity and energy intertwine and tend to drive each other ever upward. And so they both increase in our society. But this, I'm guessing you're going to tell me, is is not infinite. It, it, it maybe no, it can't, no, it can't go on forever. The, the <laughs> earth is finite. <laughs> right. Uh, so what to maybe take, take you know, ancient Rome or any other uh, uh, example of a former civilization and, and, yeah. uh, and tell me what happened in that, that, uh, that spiral? Well, I, I came to my understanding of this process, and, and this is a long-term process that usually you can't see in a human lifetime. You really have to study history to see the long-term process. And one of the examples that I'd like to use is the collapse of the, of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire faced a major crisis in the third century AD. There were uh, in continued invasions of Germanic peoples from the north and Persians from the east. There were constant civil wars. And at one point, the empire broke into three parts. And it looked like the Roman Empire was going to go away. It looked like it was going to go down. They, resp they responded, and they survived basically by increasing complexity. They divided the empire into four administrative divisions, each of which had to have its own court and its own bureaucracy and its own army. They doubled the size of the army. They increased the size of the bureaucracy. They subdivided provinces into a lot of smaller provinces to keep governors from rebelling. All of these things increased the complexity of the society and the government, but it was very costly. So they had to increase taxes on the peasantry. Now, subsistence farmers don't produce a lot of surplus per capita. Uh, they tend to be poor. They tend to be impoverished. And yet it looks like taxes doubled and then doubled again during the course of the 4th century AD to pay for this larger and more complex Roman government and Roman army. And, and ultimately what you see is that the currency becomes debased. Uh, they were trying to... Uh, adulterate the, the precious metal currency, the silver currency, to get it to go farther so they could pay their bills, so they could pay the army. Um, and and it, became it becomes clear that over time the government was simply f undergoing a fiscal failure, that it, that it could not afford the increased complexity on the basis of a subsistence economy. And so it became weak and, and collapsed. Uh, and as you say, the foundation here, the energy, quote-unquote, is human energy. In, the, in that case, the, in that well, case. the, the human energy and solar energy, okay. because, of course, it was an agricultural society. Yeah, yeah. So what, um, maybe bringing that back to uh, a scenario, a doomsday scenario, if you mm -hmm. will, which you think has been put off a couple of decades uh, due to, to, to uh, fracking, um, how would that manifest itself in broad, broad strokes? So it, well, how would the spiral spin out of control? Go back go back to the concept of E-ROI. Um, as I said, the United States produced oil and gas at an energy profit, an EROI, energy return on investment of 100 to 1 in 1940. That's now down to 15 to 1. When that gets down to about 8 to 1, we're in danger of going off what's called the energy cliff. Because beyond 8 to 1, the energy profit of producing energy decreases very rapidly. So that ultimately it becomes simply unprofitable to produce fossil fuels. And when that point comes, if we don't have alternative energy sources in place, we will collapse. It's inevitable. Mm. 
Uh, and when you say collapse, what? Well, what, what, what I define as a collapse is a rapid simplification of the society. Since I work on complexity, I define collapse as a rapid simplification. And this is what you see in Europe in the Dark Ages after the end of the Roman Empire, for example. Uh, the Dark Ages are called dark for a reason. Um, in, in our case, though, and, and collapses often involve major loss of population. In our society, a collapse where supply chains would fall apart, uh, where there's insufficient energy to produce the food that relies on fossil fuels, this would be a catastrophe unparalleled in human history. I, I can foresee a scenario where tens of millions to hundreds of millions of people would die in a period of a few months if our society collapsed and the supply chains collapsed. Mm. That, that, well, that is very dire. Yes. Um, where does where does climate change fit into this? Because you, you mentioned mm -hmm. a, a big downside of fracking, which yeah. which is perhaps ex given us some extra time, um, but but only artificially, right? It's I mean there's a there's a finiteness mm -hmm. to the to the amount of oil and, and natural gas. Um, a downside is uh, further degradation of the environment. That's right, and climate change may be the greatest. You know, barring another collapse. Climate change may be the greatest crisis that humanity has faced simply because it is so large in scale and, it, and it's going to affect so many people. Uh, and, and climate change is another one of those problems that it's going to be costly for us to address. I mean, just, just imagine if we have to evacuate tens of millions of people out of coastal Bangladesh. Where are we going to put them? Or if we have to build a seawall around Manhattan, how are we going to do that? How are we going to afford to maintain it? And so forth and so on, not to mention other coastal areas. Uh, climate change is going to be very, very costly, and it will increase the costliness of our society to no net benefit. Our well-being doesn't improve because of this. What we're doing is we're investing a lot of money and energy just to maintain the status quo, just to keep from falling behind. It's, it's, it's like the Red Queen and Alice in Wonderland. You run as fast as you can just to stay in the same place. Hmm. Uh, and then, of course, that's not sustainable. over No, over long the long term, it's not sustainable. Yeah. No. Uh, if you just joined us, we're uh, talking uh, with Joseph Tainter, who is Professor of Environment and Society um, in the uh, Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. Uh, he's also with the uh, Ecology Center at USU, and he's uh, author of several books, including he's a co-author of Drilling Down, the Gulf Oil Debacle and Our Energy Dilemma, also the uh, book The Collapse of Complex Societies. You're welcome to join the conversation at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or you could uh, join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or on Twitter as well, at upraxcess. Um, and uh, I want to uh, make a transition here now to talking a little bit about alternative energy. Mm -hmm. This is a possible way out, uh, you know, that energy sustains the complexity. Alternative energy um, possibly could replace uh, petroleum, um, but there are problems there as well. Yeah, re see, renewable energy tends to have what's called low energy density. Um, it, in, in other words, it simply doesn't have the energy density that fossil fuels have. Fossil fuels are particularly valuable, especially petroleum, um, because, first of all, they have high energy density, a lot of, a lot of kilocalories per unit of mass, and also because liquid, there's really nothing as versatile as liquid fuels. Um, the problem with renewable energy is that it's going to take a lot of land because the sun just doesn't produce that much energy per square meter of land. It's going to take a lot of land, and that's going to be environmentally damaging. Um, I, I have some statistics here from the book. Uh, if we allocated 425,000 square kilometers of our windiest places, say in the northern plains, um, we, and this was converted to energy production, this would produce 42 kilowatt hours per person per day. Um, if we use offshore wind production taking up a large part of the east coast, this would produce another 5 kilowatt hours per day. Uh, geothermal energy might give us 8 kilowatt hours per day. Hydroelectric can, can give us a little over 7 kilo, kilocalories per day. All of these add up to only 62 kilocalories per person per day, but right now we're using 250 um, kilowatt hours per person per day um, from all energy sources, and, and so this would only produce maybe a quarter of what we need. Um, 
There are some other examples I can give. Certainly. Uh, and while while you're uh, while you're getting ready to bring those up, I'm I'm wondering. Um, is there a midway? Is there, you know, have you studied any societies which have, quote unquote, collapsed to a simpler form of society, but but not collapsed all the way back to you know, Stone Age simplicity? There, there is one. There is one example that I use in my historical studies, and that's the collapse and reorganization of the Byzantine Empire in the seventh century A.D. Uh, the Byzantines lost half of their land to the Arabs in the seventh century, and that meant half of their tax revenues. And they simply couldn't continue their way of life. Now, now, the Byzantine Empire was the continuation of the Eastern Roman Empire, so it was a highly complex society. The Byzantines simply lost half their revenues and couldn't continue as they had been doing. So they had to respond, and they responded by simplifying. Um, urban life almost went away. Uh, the area was reduced to only two cities, Constantinople being the main one. Uh, Literacy and numeracy declined, uh, the periods known as the Byzantine Dark Ages. Uh, they got rid of their full-time professional army and converted to a, uh, a peasant militia that sustained itself by, by its own farms. And, and at the same time, the monetary economy essentially went away. You find very few coins for the period of, say, about 700 to 900 A.D. or 700 to 800 A.D. It was an overall simplification and it worked. Uh, the Byzantine Empire survived, and in time they went back on the offensive and recaptured some of the lands that they had lost. It's the only example I know where a complex, large complex society systematically simplified and survived by doing so. So that's the good news. It shows it can be done. The bad news is they didn't do it voluntarily. They did it because their backs were to the wall. Uh, but they're... they're uh, what are the factors, though? They, they were forced to do it. They were forced to do it. But they pulled it off. Yeah. Well, other societies were not able to pull that off. As I said, this is the only example I have come across um, mm -hmm. where a society was able to simplify, a large-scale society was able to simplify and continue in something like its previous form, mm -hmm. uh, simplify and, and reduce its costs and survive that way. Yeah. Uh, give me another couple of examples of the, the difficulties. Uh, alternative energy is held out as the solution. Um, you're, you're saying that... Uh, Perhaps we will not with alternative energy, at least as constantly, uh, presently constituted or, or planned, uh, would not be able to recoup all of the energy that we're using right now. My, my colleague, Tad Patsek, points to a solar plant in Nevada called Nevada Solar One. It's an enormous solar energy plant that covers 1.6 square kilometers of land. It's a very large area of land, and it pr produces about 15 megawatts of electricity on average. He calculates that if we were to produce all of the United States energy through plants like that, it would take over 200,000 plants like that. Uh, in other words, it would take an enormous investment, taking decades to do. Now, we could probably do it. Um, you know, the United States is well endowed with solar energy. It looks like wind energy probably cannot provide the energy that we need, although it can provide some. Um, solar energy, unfortunately, is more expensive than wind energy, but it has greater capacity to produce what we need. We could produce the solar energy that we need uh, with an area, uh, it's estimated, of about 350,000 square kilometers, but that would be in the southwest, which is one of the most beautiful parts of the country. Do we want to sacrifice the natural environment of the southwest, including maybe southern Utah, uh, to solar energy production? Now, there's a wonderful book by a fellow named David McKay called Renewable Energy Without the Hot Air, uh, in which he points out that um, if England, Wales, and Scotland were to produce all of the energy they need through renewables, it would take all of the land area of England, Scotland, and Wales. And that's clearly impossible. So transitioning off of fossil fuels is simply something that's going to be very difficult to do. Hmm. Uh, e even if, and, and uh, there's a question of viability of some of these uh, sources of alternative energy. So this is even um, talking about uh, full viability, right? Full we, we solve some of these problems, uh, it, would, it would just take a lot of land in this case. It, it would take a lot of land and it would be environmentally damaging. And, and right now, renewable energy is fairly costly. I mean, part of the problem has been that it has, is not economically competitive with, say, coal-generated or natural gas-generated electricity. 
Now, that those prices are coming down. Those costs are coming down, and it may be that in the future it will be more competitive. You know, certainly there will be economies of scale as we install more and more of these. And I, and I see that Utah has, is now just opening up a very large solar plant, uh, which, I, which I applaud. I think it's a great idea. And, and I think in the future what we're going to be looking at is probably a mix of energy technologies. There may not be any one that keeps us going, um, and, and fossil fuels may never completely go away. Hmm. I was just going to uh, to go there. Um, great minds think alike. Uh, it, yeah. I, <laughs> um, this uh, this balance between the environment, because we have a looming what many people to believe believe is a, a potential existential disaster, climate change, mm-hmm. and uh, we, what you're saying is is uh, you know if we we reach the end of energy, then it's a societal collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you balance those two? So I was just going to ask you, is, is there, do you advocate a bridge to, uh, to alternative energy wherever we're going to go, which would, would mean continuing fracking, continuing with coal, continuing with, which are dirty in a sense, you know, that would exacerbate the other problem of climate change. Well, then there are politics involved in this because, uh, the fossil fuel industry doesn't, doesn't want to lose its, its customers. Um, so they would like us to keep going. And of course they have lots of money to donate to politicians and, uh, and perpetuate the fossil fuel industry. Uh, I, I, I see a transition lasting several decades, but there also have to be policies that encourage that transition. Uh, some places do. California has policies to encourage that transition. And Texas, of all places, is leading the nation in, in renewable energy. Um, and, and places like Texas, I, I think, are going to continue to lead. And, and I'm, I'm seeing, uh, you know, Exxon commercials touting alternative energy. You know, they're, 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 some of these companies are trying to make a transition. We're an energy company, and we want to be involved in alternative energy. That's at least the PR spin. That, that was you. the PR. BP was doing this a few years ago, mm-hmm. and it turned out it was just spin. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was nothing substantive to it. I don't know whether there's something substantive to it with Exxon. If I was the head of a petroleum company, I would certainly be looking at investing in alternative te- energy technologies mm-hmm. because I – I think to a certain extent the handwriting's on the wall. Um, we probably have a few more decades of fossil fuel use at the rate we use it now, but it's clear that it won't go on forever. Uh, let's take another break. When we come back, I want to explore the, uh, the, the timeline. Uh, it's, uh, it's high stakes. We're all interested in it. And uh, I don't know if you, you know your colleague would probably know. He's in Saudi Arabia. But, but my impression, I think not only me, is that Saudi Arabia and some other places, they're, they're still sticking a straw on the ground. Yes. And uh, who knows how many more decades, you know, massive oil reserves. But, you know, there's an end point somewhere. We'll explore a little bit of that. And uh, I want to go back and talk about some, maybe some other uh, societies, ancient societies that you've uh, studied as okay. well following the break. We're talking with Joseph Tainter, who is a professor of environment and society at Utah State University. Uh, and uh, we're using his jumping off point for this discussion, the film that's just out, uh, Deepwater Horizon. Uh, Joseph Tainter, along with Ted Patsick of uh, University of Texas, Austin, is author of Drilling Down, the Gulf Oil Debacle and Our Energy Dilemma. Another of his books, a very influential book, is The Collapse of Complex Societies. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Four Paws Animal Rescue, presenting the 16th annual Moon Dog Ball, Saturday, October 15th at the Logan Golf and Country Club, with a silent auction, hors d'oeuvres, and live music and entertainment. Information at moondog.eventbrite.com. This is Brian Erickson bringing more to life. It is natural for parents to balk at taking direction from their child so it's important to be firm and honest, yet sensitive and never patronizing. Providing reassurance can ease your parents' fears. Let them know your goal is to help them maintain their independence for as long as possible. Assure them it's okay if they require some assistance to do so. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Chamber Music Society of Logan presenting the St. Lawrence String Quartet with works by Haydn, Beethoven, and 21st century composer John Adams. 
Thursday, October 6th at 7.30 in the USU Performance Hall. Details at cmslogan.org. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment with Joseph Tainter. He is a professor of environment and society in the Quinney College of Natural Resources. He's also involved with the USU Ecology Center. He's author, uh, along with Ted Patsick of University of Texas Austin, of Drilling Down the Gulf Oil Debacle and Our Energy Dilemma. His books also include The Collapse of Complex Society, Societies, and we're uh, talking about Deepwater Horizon, Oil and Natural Gas, Alternative Energy, and the complex of, uh, um, coll- Collapse of Complex Societies with uh, Joseph Tainter. You can join the conversation at 800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at upraxis. Um, so, Joseph Tainter, it's it's my impression, I'm sure I'm not uh, the only one, and you can disabuse me of this, that uh, just as it was many years ago in the United States, uh, I'm assuming that in Saudi Arabia and some other places, they're, they're still just sticking a straw on the ground, essentially. It hasn't reached the, the, you know, the, that, that high cost of extracting oil. Saudi Arabia is probably... The, the Persian Gulf as a whole looks to be still getting oil at, at an E-Rave of about 25 to 1. Uh, and and that's, a, that's a good return on energy investment. The problem with Saudi Arabia is that they don't give out any data. Um, so it's hard to gauge exactly what they're doing. Uh, there are satellite photos that Tad Patsek told me about that look like um, some of the, like some of the fields are collapsing. Um, that that in other words, they're being pumped out, and and the drilling rigs are are moving closer and closer together to some central point, as if that's the last of the pool that's remaining. Um, but as I say, it's very hard for us to to say. Saudi Saudi Arabia looks to be like it's still the swing producer. Of course, they've been trying to put fracking out of business mm-hmm. because they clearly perceived that it was a threat to themselves, and to a certain extent, they've exceeded. You know, Saudi Arabia is the primary reason why gasoline prices are so low today, why oil prices are so low, because they have not cut back. As, as we have been producing more oil from hydraulic fracturing, Saudi Arabia did not cut back, and it was a deliberate strategy to destroy our fracking industry. Hmm. Uh, and to a certain extent, they've, they've succeeded. So uh, I'm not sure when we when we think we'll hit peak oil. It, it seems like it's been pushed back and back a little bit. Yeah, and, and it keeps getting pushed back and back. And the problem with peak oil is that you only know it in hindsight. What we can say is that we did reach the peak for what's called conventional oil, or, or easy oil. This is onshore, shallow, in large pools. We've reached the peak for that. Uh, when we will reach the overall peak for production worldwide, we just don't know. Um, I, I, as I said, I think it's been pushed off a few decades. But we, uh, we know, I think uh, the, the biggest oil booster would admit that it's finite, right? At some point, we will reach peak oil. Some people don't admit that. And that was don't. Some, no, some, some, some people think we can always innovate ways to find more, okay. um, and, which led to another project that I've been working on with some colleagues, which is looking at the productivity of innovation, uh, partic- even innovation in the energy sector. And, and, and you know, we're used to innovation in our society. You can go into the electronic store, and there are always new electronic widgets for sale. But we looked at a very large database of patenting, and what we found is that it's taking more and more resources in the form of scientists to generate a patentable innovation, and the productivity of innovation is actually going down. Mm-hmm. So how do we keep innovating as many things as we do? We just throw more and more resources at it. It's it's somewhat analogous to E-Roy. We spend more and more to get less and less. This goes to the spiral you were talking about. This is this is similar to part of the spiral. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we do have that attitude, don't we? These yes. these days, we can innovate ourselves out of any jam. That's that is the belief that we can always find a technological solution to everything. Mm-hmm. Yes. You're, I, I sense you're skeptical. Oh, I'm very skeptical. Uh, because, because, primarily because I see the productivity of innovation going down. See, inno- innovation grows more complex just like anything else. In the 19th century, uh, amateur naturalists could establish new scientific fields. Think of Charles Darwin or Gregor Mendel. Today, it takes large interdisciplinary teams and large institutions to do research. Uh, and, and so the costs go up and up, and the benefits get smaller and smaller. Is there a sweet spot? Is there a, you know, it's a spiral, a complexity spiral. Yeah, yeah. Is there a stopping point, a sweet spot that a society can, can stop at and sustain itself? Some people argue for what would be called a steady state society, where a society that doesn't grow. Uh, I, I think there are a couple of problems with that. Steady state means steady state. 
it economically it means that if someone is going to ascend the economic ladder, someone else has to fall off it by the same amount. It means birth rates equal death rates. Do you think Americans are going to agree to that? No. <laughs> um, the other problem with steady state is that it assumes we encounter no challenges in the future, and that's, of course, absurd. Societies grow in complexity to meet challenges, as we saw in the case of the Roman Empire and as we see in, in our own case today. Societies grow in complexity to meet challenges, and, and steady state assumes that there are no future challenges, mm-hmm. that we can simply get by on what we have now. Uh, I wonder, I'd like to go back to a, a, another example, perhaps, that, you know, we talked about Rome, we talked about uh, the Byzantine Empire, uh, another example you might cite. Yeah, th- there are actually a couple, and, and, and the one I'd, I'd like to mention is actually more from recent history. It's a study that I did with one of my PhD students, Temis Taylor, in which we looked at recovery uh, in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina compared to recovery in San Francisco after the 1906 earthquake. These were disasters of about comparable magnitude. I think San Francisco, the damage was about 1.4% of the gross domestic product. Katrina was about 1.2%. So these were disasters of comparable magnitude. But a year after the San Francisco earthquake, San Francisco had recovered more than 90% of its population. A year after Katrina, New Orleans had recovered less than half of its population. So clearly, we're looking at a society today that seems to have less resilience in the face of natural disasters. And and we argue that this is because of complexity and costliness, complexity and cost that simply didn't exist in 1906. But our society as a whole, and and particularly the government, have simply grown more complex and costly in the intervening years, making us less resilient and less able to to deal with catastrophes like this. Mm. And and we hope there aren't any more in the future, but we can't count on that. We assume there have to be. Another study that I like very much is looking at the collapse of the Maya civilization. Um, There's a colleague of mine who's been working on the area of, of the major Mayan city called Tikal, which is in the middle of Guatemala, uh, looking at going across the land and taking pollen samples all across what would have been Tikal's territory. And what he found was that the Maya were using their landscape to the fullest. They lacked what I call reserve problem-solving capacity, which is to have some kind of energy or fiscal reserve to encounter challenges. In other, they were using their landscape to the full, and so they didn't have any reserve capacity. Then it looks like perhaps a drought hit, a major drought hit, and they simply had no way of coping with it. They were, they were probably overpopulated. They were using their land to the maximum extent that they could, and they lacked reserves to deal with this major drought that seems to have come in the 8th to 9th centuries A.D. So com- complexity can cause, can lead, can make a society vulnerable to collapse in a number of different ways. Um, an inability to solve problems, an inability to meet challenges, uh, simple fiscal failure, uh, or lack of energy sources. Let's uh, go to, I want to talk about solutions, po- possible solutions, and you've, you've hinted at one there. You decided something there. I want to go to an email. This is from uh, Dale. He says, one energy factor not mentioned so far is energy efficiency. We currently waste about 50% of our energy consumption. Energy efficiency is the most cost-effective way of creating energy by saving it. And, and, and I agree with him in the short term. The problem with energy efficiency and with technical improvements is what's called the Jevons Paradox. This is named after an English historian of the 19th century, English economist of the 19th century, William Stanley Jevons, who wrote a famous book called The Coal Question, in which he argued that England was going to lose its dominance in the world because its coal mines would be exhausted. And, of course, he couldn't foresee petroleum. I mean, this is one of the mistakes that he made. But in another way, his, his argument was quite, uh, was quite interesting. What he argued was that improvements in the economy of using a resource actually lead to more use of the resource rather than less because the price is reduced. So if you economize, if you introduce efficiency into, say, technologies, the cost of using the technologies goes down and people simply respond by using more of them. Uh, You can see this in the 1970s when we had two oil crises. Uh, The price of oil quadrupled in 1973 and it doubled again in 79. And Americans responded by buying smaller cars. They got so such good gas mileage out of these smaller cars that they res- they didn't they didn't respond by saving the money. They responded by driving more miles. And I put together a chart that shows this. It's a very interesting chart. The uh, you know, fuel economy and miles driven per year seem to track almost on a on a one to one ratio. Um, so the, the, the Jevons paradox is kind of an insurmountable problem with energy efficiency. 
Uh, I want to. We just have a couple minutes left. I wanted to uh, go to you know solution. So, you mm-hmm. know, you're, you talk about big macro. You know, big yeah. society as a whole, and and so it's. I, I don't know if we can bring this back to you and me. What we can do, but uh, maybe talking about nation or or government or society or or individuals. What what do you suggest? A, a lot of the solution lies in attitudes, the public attitudes, and the political sector. If the public attitude is there, the political sector will follow. Germany has an explicit policy of converting to renewable energy, and they they are investing a lot in it. Uh, electricity from renewables costs more, and German households are paying more in their in their monthly electric bills, but they're willing to accept it because they see the future. They understand. You know, Germany is a place that doesn't have the resources, the natural resources that the United States has, except for coal. It has lots of coal. But they want to get out of the coal. Uh, they're concerned about climate change, and they want Germany to focus on creating renewables. And, and I think Germany is a model for what we have to do in other places, that we need a shift in public attitudes bringing about a shift in the political system so that there's more and more encouragement to shift us onto renewable energy, acknowledging that renewable energy isn't perfect. We're going to continue to need fossil fuels for a lot of things. One of the things, then, if you, we use the German example, then we as consumers will have to signal that we are willing to pay higher prices? Write a letter to your to, congressman. To, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just uh, just a minute left. I want to. I haven't talked about one potential. It's, it's brought forward even by some environmentalists nowadays as a potential help, if not panacea, and that's nuclear power. I, I, I'm one of the people who, who is not opposed to nuclear. A lot of people are afraid of it, but I think they're afraid largely because they don't understand it. And, of course, we had those films in the 1950s showing mutant monsters from <laughs> nuclear radiation. Um, and, and, and then there was that terrible catastrophe in Japan, the Fukushima meltdown. Um, and, and, and people in, in places, in fact, Germany decided to close down all of their nuclear plants. Japan has closed down, I think, all of its nuclear plants. I'm not sure if any of them have reopened since then. Uh, so there's a lot of fear of nuclear, but I, I, I think nuclear can be managed um, responsibly, and, and I'm not an opponent of nuclear. We uh, are out of time. The, uh, the, the book we're talking about uh, most uh, specifically is Deepwater Horizon, or Drilling Down, rather, the Gulf Oil Debacle and Our Energy Dilemma. It's, uh, it's based on Deepwater Horizon Catastrophe. And uh, the author is Joseph Tainter. Co-author is uh, Ted Patsick from University of Texas, Austin. Uh, we've also been talking about uh, Joseph Tainter's influential book, The Collapse of Complex Societies. Joseph Tainter is USU Professor of Environment and uh, Society. And uh, he has uh, joined us for the hour. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Um, we are going to talk about another uh, very interesting uh, thing that's happening in our society uh, tomorrow uh, when uh, uh, San Francisco uh, 49ers uh, quarterback uh, Colin Kaepernick uh, took a knee during the national anthem. Uh, recently, he uh, set off an ongoing vigorous uh, conversation about patriotism and free speech and race and policing. We're going to talk about that tomorrow on the program. Hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening today. Mortgage banking is a business, a business that affects people's lives. It's difficult to make a loan of that size and earn uh, an appropriate amount of income to be able to pay the bill. I'm Colin Rizdal. How low-income black neighborhoods in Detroit are at a mortgage disadvantage. That is next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Heard statewide on KUSR, Logan, KUSK, Vernal, KUSL, Richfield, KUST, Moab, KCEU, Price, and KUSU-FM, Logan. 